You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Dr. Diane Hess. Uh, she's the medical director of Gramercy Pediatrics. So, uh, Dr. Hess, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I see in your bio, um, you know, some of the accolades is in 2013, you were the top doctor ranked in New York Magazine, and you're the, you know, the director of Gramercy Pediatrics. Um, but, you know, there's all these accolades. Tell me, let's talk about what you're working on. What's your uh, your goal here in medicine? What do you do right now? So um, I'm a general pediatrician. So I see kids from birth till they go off to college and sometimes after college. Um, but my passion and my specialty is pediatric obesity. So um, I have specialized for the, about the past 18 years in children who suffer from weight issues and obesity-related issues. Yeah, and I'm... Uh, I'm- 43, so I, I grew up at a time where uh, it seemed like there were very few kids that were overweight. You know, there was like, a, you know, I guess, you know, I guess they just called it like a token fat kid, you know? Right, um, right. Nowadays, I look around and it seems like there's a tremendous amount of kids that are overweight and it like really worries me. So, you know, I wanted to ask you what, perhaps you've seen the same and, you know, what are your thoughts on why it seems like, unless I'm not seeing properly, uh, you know, we have a lot more over, overweight kids than we used to. Oh yeah, it's um it's so prevalent now. Um I think that probably from when you were a child, the kids who were considered overweight and fat might not even be considered overweight and fat compared to what we're seeing now because the kids are so obese. Um it's an epidemic in the United States and all over the world, you know, it's spread. It's a it's um a first world country problem that has spread to third world countries now. Um it's really an environmental disease. <clears throat> we know that some families do tend to um, have some genetic dispositions to being overweight and just affects every socioeconomic status. It affects all races. It affects married families, divorced families, single parents. There's no one that um, obesity hasn't touched. In the United States, the prevalence of obesity is about um, almost 19% in children. Um, that's 13.7 million children, according to the CDC. And it just hasn't hasn't really improved with a lot of the... The, the changes that we try to make, you know, changes that pediatricians try to make and, and families and recommendations are all um, 
counteracted by industry, food industry, um, lack of funding in public schools, lack of funding uh, for healthy choices at lunch, lack of funding for sports programs. Um, it's much cheaper to eat unhealthy than it is to eat healthy in the United States. You know, fresh vegetables cost much more than a fast food. You know, I always say I didn't invent the wheel. So the, it's, it's really um, the children are not getting enough exercise. We are eating the wrong foods. Foods are processed. It's much cheaper to buy processed fast foods than to eat fresh food in the United States. Um, the school lunches are very poor. Schools have very low funding for physical fitness, for um, healthy choices for diet. Um, and people are on the go. People, people are on the move, and kids play video games. Kids are on iPads from, like, the age of one, I see it in my office, you know, playing with their kid parents' phone. Mm -hmm. um, we've become a much, much more sedentary society. And uh, our food choices are poor. The foods are processed. The, the amount of sugary drinks that children in the United States consume is crazy. Um, it's much easier to pick up a dollar menu meal than to make a healthy, you know, meal of broccoli and grilled chicken. So sometimes it's just based on budget. So there's a lot of factors in play. You know, you have to remember that our genes, yes, there are some families who run, you know, where obesity and being overweight runs in their family. But on the whole, the genetics of the human population hasn't dramatically changed in the last 40 years. What has changed is our society. So uh, we really have to take some responsibility for that. And, right. um, you know, parents, uh, it's easy to blame, you know, parents. Well, he, his family's big boned. Um, it's not me, it's my babysitter. Oh, it's school lunch. You know, there's a lot of issues at play. So um, when parents ask, you know, when people ask me, well, what do you do that's different when you treat pediatric obesity? Like, or, you know, what makes it work? And I think what makes it work is that every single parent I speak to, I do something different with them because every family is different. Some family eat very healthy foods, but they have major portion distortion. They're eating way too much food. Um, and some family exercise a lot, but they make the wrong choices with food. So, you know, every single family is different. Um, hmm. And obesity is a disease that touches everybody. There's really, like, no family is left untouched by it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said you have a passion to work in this area, and you work in it, you know, for a number of years. What made you uh, want to do it? So that's interesting. Um, actually, I grew up, I'm one of three sisters, and I was always very underweight. I was the one who was made fun of because they were skinny when I was little. I have... Mm. Um, a sister who looks at food and gains weight, and then I had a normal weight sister. So I always felt really sorry for my sister who was overweight, um, which I, I said I think I've said this a little bit earlier, but if you saw her pictures from when we were little, today you wouldn't even consider her overweight. But in those days she was overweight um, because it's just become the norm. But she was overweight, and people were really mean to her, like especially because I was so thin, and I just couldn't believe that people could be so so mean to somebody. You know, they would say terrible things to her in like fourth, fifth grade and um, like, oh, if only you were thin like your sister. Or, you're so pretty. You're prettier than your sister, but you're just overweight. Like terrible things, you know, right. it's really bullying. Um, and I, that kind of made me very interested in it. And I ate a lot when I was little. So I was like, okay, there's some genetics at play here because we're all eating the same food in our house and I'm probably eating more than my sisters, but I was underweight and my sister wasn't hmm. when my sisters wasn't. So that was just very interesting to me. And then I think as I grew up and I just was in residency and, you know, finished medical school and I'm in residency and in medical school, you learn about failure to thrive, the kids who are starving, who aren't growing. Yeah. Yet, I think I saw one in three years, but when I was doing my residency in the Bronx, I mean, almost every other kid was overweight. I mean, by age two, they were, they were sitting in the waiting room and they were drinking, you know, fruit punch in a baby bottle and hot Doritos. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had patients that had all rotten teeth because, um, they weren't even getting milk or formula. They were getting just juice because it was, oh, it, was it used to be given by WIC for free. So really? free. Yeah. And, um, 
they would drink it. It would just rot their teeth. They would they would fall out of their mouth literally. So I just I just was like you know everybody was studying the kid who wasn't growing and wasn't thriving, and I was seeing these overfed, undernourished kids. So kind of became my passion. Yeah, well, I'm from New York too, and I remember like mm-hmm. you know growing up. I, I tell my kids this, you know, like I've always been heavy and gotten heavy over the years and stuff. And people, you know, like they do say terrible things, but it's kind of funny. They would even say, ah, you fat bastard. But it was like kind of a term of endearment. <laughs> right. But now right. it's not. And it's, you know, it's it's more prevalent. My, so. my family, my grandparents were, my grandmother and like one side, they were immigrants. They didn't, they were embarrassed that I was skinny. They liked my, the heavier grandchild. You know, that was a sign, hmm. sign that you had made it in America, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So what you said you use different strategies for different families. Yeah. Are there any major threads or themes that you see? And then what do you tell families that fall into like the major categories, not the unusual weird ones, but sure, sure, sure. I think sugary drinks. So sometimes families are like, Oh, we don't drink soda in our family, but like they'll be drinking lemonade and fruit punch. That's like one thing. And then the other thing is like, Oh, we play sports, but the, the kids have like a sports drink at everyone, like at every meet, like a Gatorade or a vitamin water, which are just sugar water. Um, that's a big thing. And then in teenagers, so like sugary drinks overall are a huge problem in the United States. Mm. And then a lot of the socializing for the adolescents and the teenagers, like they meet up and they get a frappuccino or like a culotta or something, you know, like that. It's not alcohol, of course, but it's it's, uh, it's a drink. And those drinks sometimes have 500 to 600 calories. So or a thousand. Drinking, yeah, yeah. Kids are drinking a lot of sugary drinks. So that's, that's one big problem. And juice. Parents think juice, it's still a misnomer that juice is healthy. And, you know, oh, they always have a glass of juice at breakfast. And I'm like, cut out the juice and switch to fruit because with the fruit you get the fiber. When you're, With the juice you just get the water and the sugar. So that's a big theme. Um, school lunch is a huge problem. So school lunch is a problem both for rich and poor. So um, in the private schools where the kids have a buffet lunch or, you know, a cafeteria style, some kids are taking, you know, three and four portions. Um, I have patients who come and be like, oh, I did have lunch at school today. Doctor has, I had a buttered roll, I had the pasta, and I had a potato at their lunch. Because, you know, there's seven, and that's what they choose. And then you have kids who go to school, you know, public school, and lunch is loaded with salt, uh, not often healthy choices. And then sometimes if there are healthy choices, the kids said that, like, the vegetables are disgusting, and they're overcooked, and the salad bar is dirty, so they don't want to touch it if there is a salad bar, which is, sometimes it sounds more like a condiment bar, like pickles and tomatoes and sliced onions. Um, so a lot of a lot of the you know reasons that half the lunch either goes in the garbage or what they eat they just stick to like the tater tots the hamburger the chicken nuggets Taco Tuesday kind of thing and pizza so so that's a, a huge problem and some of our kids get like in New York we get um, free public school lunch in most of the schools a uh, breakfast I'm sorry free public school breakfast so um, sometimes when I sit down with my patients I say what do you eat for breakfast and the mom will say. Oh, I make them oatmeal before they go to school, which I'll be so happy about. And then I say, okay, and when you get to school, what do you choose for breakfast? And the parents will be like, wait a second, they don't get breakfast at school. And I say, no, they do. A lot of them do, not all of them. And then the kids say, oh, yeah, when I get to school, I take a muffin and juice. And the parents mm-hmm. hadn't even known that they got a second breakfast. So they're, they're double dipping. And then we have kids who also take lunch from home and then get the free school lunch. So they're double dipping. Um, in a lot of the schools, the after-school program serves the school lunch again at four or five. So as a oh, snack. the same stuff? Yeah, yeah. So these kids are being so overfed and overfed the wrong foods. 
Um, I think New York City has done a pretty good job of eliminating sugary snacks from vending machines in school. Um, they have healthier choices, but not every state does, and it's very state-dependent. It depends on your funding. Um, and taking out sodas and juices from the, from the vending machines at school, they should only be getting water or low-fat milk. Um, so that's another big spread. And then I would say crossing all communities is just really um, not eating, like, at the table, at home, with your family. You know, everybody's on the go. Parents order um, pizza for one kid, and the other kid grabs, you know, chicken wings on the way home. And when I say to the kids, how many, you know, how many slices of pizza do you have, they'll say three, and they're 10 years old. So it's like this wow. portion distortion. But, you know, at some places you can get a dollar slice, so they get three slices of pizza. There's so many. There's so many questions to be asked, and then the, la- the complete lack of exercise. Um, in New York City, the public schools only have gym once a week for 45 minutes until sixth grade through sixth grade. Really? That's huh. yes. That's it. Yeah. And then in other schools, you know, there's limited space. And some of the schools that I've worked um, around, the kids can't run in the gym because there's poles, so they can get hurt. Um, they don't have a gym. They don't have a recess yard. There's, there's so many issues. And then some places have big yards and recess yards, and they don't have staffing to watch the kids. There's just so many, you know, so many issues at play. So that's why I really spend a lot of time with my families because I'm trying to make them be able to exercise, you know, okay, let's say your mom is at work. What floor do you live on? Oh, I live on the fourth floor. Can you take the stairs? Oh, I don't want to take the stairs. That's so hard. But, okay, let's try to take two flights of stairs today. And then maybe next week you can take three flights of stairs. You know, you just try, you know, to be creative. It's, it's so silly, but... You know, everybody looks for the, they always say, like, everybody looks for the closest parking spot in the mall. Can you park from the furthest parking spot and walk towards the door? Um, can you get off one bus stop earlier and walk more? Can you get off one subway stop earlier and walk more? Um, do you own a jump rope? Do you own a hula hoop? You know, I want to get these kids moving. Yeah, um, makes sense. Yeah, so it's just, it's not even really medicine, some of the stuff I do. And then the other part is that there there's a lot of medicine involved. There's kids with prediabetes and high insulin levels and high blood pressure they have joint pains, they have worsened asthma. Some girls have, you know, irregular menstrual cycles because of their weight. I mean, it affects everything. It, it really, it, and it mostly it affects their self-esteem, and they get bullied. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, what you're seeing, all kinds of uh, medical effects at what ages? Um, little. I have patients who have high blood pressure already by the age of, you know, three and four. I have kids oh who have. God insulin resistance by the age of five. I have patients who have joint pain from their, you know, from their weight. Uh, there's just, there's so many issues. Wow. How long, so some of your um, first patients, how long have they been with you and what's been the progress? Oh, so I have some patients who've been with me for like six or seven years, which is, is really rare in weight management because most people, and that's another misconception that post, most people think it's like a quick fix. Like, oh, when am I going to be done? And I'm like, you're not going to be done for a long time. And, I'm, and I don't, and I don't say it to be mean. I say, this is a, this, you didn't become this weight in a year. You became this weight over six or seven years, and it's going to take us a long time to put it off because the body puts up so many barriers to lose weight. That's why weight loss is unsuccessful for most people because your body does everything not to lose that weight. Um, because the more weight you lose, your metabolism slows down a lot, and then you have to put out more extra effort and diet even more to lose more weight. That's why people, it's like a yo-yo diet. They keep on getting their weight back. Um, So with with some families, I use medicine. I'm probably one of the few doctors who does, but I use a lot of, I I don't use a lot of medicine, but I use the same few medicines with many patients. I use some, um, I use metformin, which is a a drug commonly used in diabetes, but it's also used in prediabetes. So I use that with children. Um, Kids who have high 
high lipids like high cholesterol and high, you know, um, high triglycerides. I use some fish oils so they take supplements and, you know, we don't want them to take statins, those pills that adults take because they have a lot of side effects. Um, I have some kids who are very low vitamin D, so they're on um, vitamin D supplementation. That doesn't help them lose weight. It just keeps them healthier. Um, I have some kids taking supplemental fiber. I mean, uh, we have to do a lot to keep them healthy from getting diabetes and the complications when they're children because when you – before you have diabetes, all of it's reversible. Once you have diabetes, there's really no reversal of type 2 diabetes, um, and those those young adults or um, adults will go on probably to get metabolic surgery later in life, or they'll have to be on meds the rest of their life. If yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I so, tell yeah. my kids, you know, I, I tell my kids it's a, this is a struggle that every human being on earth has, mm-hmm. and the problem is, like, you know, you're asked to make food choices four, five, six times a day, every day, so it's... Mm-hmm. It's so hard to make the right choice, make the right choice make every single day for years and years and years. And, and I tell them, like, you know, your whole life, you're going to have to watch out for this. And I tell them, you don't want, you know, like, mm-hmm. I look at me, like, you know, I'm heavy and stuff, but I'm not like, I've gotten a lot better. But I tell them, look at me, it's going to take me years if I ever even get rid of this. So I don't want you guys to have that struggle your whole life. So that's my kind of speech. Right. Thing, I, you, know? What I, you know, what I always say to the patients that I have is that, it's not fun for parents to say no all day, you know, like we don't like to say no. I mean, it would be much, I always say it would be much easier for us to say yes. Oh, can I have that donut? Yes. Oh, can I have those cookies? Yes. Oh, can I have that sugar cereal for breakfast? Yes. We would have no fights. It would be so much easier to be a parent. I said, but we have the fights and we tell you no because we love you and your parents are here because they love you, you know, and I think that's a big thing because, you know, everybody feels bad for their kid and it's like, oh, it's Halloween and now it's going to be Thanksgiving and now it was Thanksgiving and now it's going to be Christmas and what can we do? So like I give the parents a lot of tools of how to make the holidays, you know, happy and that your child does not feel deprived because I'm never the doctor unless the patient really has diabetes. I'm never the doctor that says you can never have something because mm. if you say that nobody's going to come back to you, right? So it's right. about flexibility. Um, but I'll say, okay, if you know that you're going to the Thanksgiving dinner and there's or the Christmas that's coming up and there's nothing healthy that you can eat, maybe your family can make, you know, the dish that'll be relatively healthier. And then a lot of times they'll say, oh, I can't cook. And I say, can you cut fruit? You can make a fruit salad. Can you cut vegetables? You can make a regular salad. Can you, you know, for the kids, can you make fruit kebabs? Like put like a strawberry, blueberry, a marshmallow. So it's like something little, but it's sweet, but the kids will still like it. You know, so I hear a lot of, I I don't want to be judgmental, but you hear a lot of excuses in this field. Like, oh, I can't do this because I'm working. I can't do this because my knees hurt. I don't have a car to go to get that. So I've done all the research. I have made the parents lists and lists of things that they get that that are affordable and ways to get things delivered to your house that are affordable and and, uh, local resources. And that's what doctors really need to do in their community is to like reach out to the resources, the police, police athletic league, the YMCA, the farmer's market. Like you need to know what will make your patient's lives easier. Um, and yeah, makes for sense. Kids. Yeah, because, um, you know, I, I've been seeing this girl, you know, she comes to see me from an hour away, and I kept on asking her about after schools, and the mom's like, there's no after school, there's no after school, and then one day they dropped, she dropped her daughter early, and she said that she saw, you know, a gym coach, and, and the, the kids have a, uh, a roadrunner club in the morning. And she said, I had no idea, because I was looking for after school, but actually before school they have a running club. Okay. Um, so, like, now she's going to enroll her daughter in it. But, like, that mom is a single mom. She's very busy. She doesn't really have time. So, like, left to her own accord, she really didn't, like, look at all the resources. Because if she just had called the school, they would have said, we have running in the morning. Right, and she didn't um, even know it's there, yeah. Yeah, she didn't even know it. So, it's just it's just about, like, pushing them and, and giving them encouragement. And, like, I, 
you know, a lot of the patients I see and a lot of the kids I see have been to other doctors already for this before. And they're like, oh, we're, you know, the, you're the fourth doctor we've seen for obesity. And, you know, we went to a nutritionist and they did nothing. Um, and it's very hard what we do because we send these families back to the same circumstances they came from before. So they have to have the buy-in, the readiness to change. Sometimes we see that the parents are ready to change, but the kids have no desire to change. They like eating junk and they've learned these habits. So, you know, I have patients who only want to eat hot dogs and chicken nuggets and they don't want to eat anything green or anything yellow. Um, I have patients that didn't eat. I'm not exaggerating. I have many patients that have not eaten a fruit, fruit and vegetable in years. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. So it's like, so every family is different. That's what I'm saying, like small steps. So if I can get like one patient to eat cauliflower, like, or a cauliflower pizza crust that's white, <laughs> you know, that's my goal for the week. You know, one new thing, very small steps. And then if they feel good that they took that step, then you have buy-in. You know, if I tell them to make like a thousand changes, like no more soda, no more juice, no more candy, no more, no more white bread, no more, you know, everything on the first visit, they're never coming back to see. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what do, what do the parents look like? Is, you know, if you have overweight kids, well, do you always have overweight parents or is no, it not necessarily No, not correlated? necessarily at all. Not at all. So, yes, there are definitely families where weight gain runs in the family. And then, you know, I had a couple the other day who were morbidly obese and their daughter was obese. And the dad was really on board about, like, the weight loss and the changes. And the mother was very defensive, like, extremely defensive. And anything I said, she kind of bit my head off. And you could just see that she suffered with her weight for so long. And I think she thought I was being judgmental. So the dad, I was almost like, you know, we have to take it down a notch. Like, his wife, like, you know, she's trying to help us. Right, right. But, but, but like, obesity comes with so much stigma attached to it. And so many people have been hurt by being overweight in their lives that they – put this on their children, right? And they don't even realize what they do. Um, but you just need one parent or one adult to buy in. And sometimes it's even the grandparents, like because the mother and father at work and the grandparents are cooking and they might be from a culture where they eat rice with every meal or they cook with lard and food is love. And how can you have a skinny grandchild? You know, so I'll say, can you bring back your grandpa because he's the one who does the cooking? Or can you bring back your babysitter because she's the one who does the cooking? It's it's really almost psychology, you know, not even just medicine. Well, it seems like, I don't know, it seems like you have a super tough job that, uh, I don't know how you... But it's rewarding. Well, that, that's what I was going to ask. So when does it work? What makes it work? And, you know, how often does it work? Or how, how often do you I just, like, say, give up? Okay, I never give up. I will never give up on you if you come to my office. <laughs> because... I, I take risks. So I use in children that are adolescents, I use weight loss drugs, just like they use in adults. I use weight loss drugs and I've used them to safely and successfully in children. In my patients who really cannot lose weight with diet, exercise, and weight loss drugs, I have sent numerous patients for bariatric surgery, you know, metabolic surgery as they're getting older, you know, over 15 and over. And it's life-changing for them. It gives their lives, it gives them their lives back. Um, but what the, the, the key to success is parental buy-in. Because remember, the kids don't do the food shopping. The kids do not bring them to the doctor. So you really have to have a parent or a guardian on board to make this work. And a lot of the things I say, the kid is totally I – have, I have a girl patient who really, really wants to be on a basketball team, but her family's religious Jewish, and they won't let her be on a basketball team. So she's an amazing athlete, but she doesn't have that opportunity. So what can I do? You know, I can't change her home. She's going to have to wait until she turns 18 and find a basketball league to play in because they will only let her play in an all-girl basketball league that starts after five. Very hard to find. Right. Um, so, you know, and she, she's not allowed to play on Friday night. She's not allowed to play on Saturday. There's every – and I have that for every religion. Every every group of people, you know, have something. Oh, I have Catholic school every Sunday morning. I can't be on the swim team. You know, there's there's just so many 
roadblocks in the way. And it's just about being prioritized. So you, you said that um, a lot of your patients will have gone to other doctors before you. Do, yeah. you, do you find out common names of who they've been to, and do you try to interact with those doctors? Yeah. or? I, know. I do. I think a lot of them are not bad doctors. I think they get. I think most of my patients get sent to hospital centers to see a pediatric endocrinologist, which are phenomenal doctors. But they see hundreds of patients a day, and most of them have real endocrinological problems, like they have, you know, hypothyroidism or adrenal problems, or you know, there are too many to count. And really, pediatric obesity is not so much an endocrinological problem as much as it's a lifestyle, you know, primary care problem. So those doctors might not see you back frequent enough just because they're at academic centers. So they'll say, come back in three months, come back in six months. I see my patients at the beginning once every two weeks. Then after like three months, I might see you once every month or once every two months. I mean, the more they want to come, the better. And that's where I find the most success is because they have accountability. You know, bring me a food diary next week. Let's see what kind of changes we can make. Let's see what time of the day you're getting the most hungry. Oh, is it after school? Are you taking the right snack? Oh, I'm taking, you know, baked potato chips. And I'll say, well, instead of baked potato chips, which is just a carbohydrate, why don't we take some healthy nuts or some fruit or some cut up carrots and hummus, you know, and, and we'll make choices based on the things I see they like in their diet diary. So it's really hands-on. It's about like being very hands-on. Um, I think people also think that I'm a nutritionist, so I don't make meal plans for them, but I give them recommendations that they can take home and use in their day-to-day life. And I think that parents love that. They, they love the lists I give them about healthy foods and what supermarkets you can get them in or where you can order it online. They want tools. What about um, having an event where you get, and I don't know if you get all your patients, but invite all your patients of certain ages, you know, and do like a, an event every month or every few months and kind of do maybe a little bit of teaching and interaction and all yeah. there. Maybe well, the families would work together. Right. right? So I did a, I did that for a very long time. I ran the BFIT program in the Parksville YMCA, and that was something similar similar to that. Like the kids came once or twice a week, but the parents came, you know, every other weekend or something. And we did a cooking event, and we made healthy smoothies or cut up mango salsa, and we taught them how to cook and where to buy it and how to do that. We did we've done field trips at the supermarket where we teach the kids how to read the labels, and then they have to run around the supermarket to find the bread with the most fiber or the orange juice with the calcium, like all different things. And those are really fun. They are very hard to pull off. They are very hard to pull off because, I mean, especially in New York City, people come from all over, right? Patients coming from Jersey and patients coming from Long Island. So you'll be lucky if you can get two parents to show up. <laughs> something. Mm, gotcha. um, but, but it's true that when you have a family activity and other states and other academic centers have done amazing studies when the families are involved. When the families are involved, you get a much better, robust response, for sure. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So where do you go from here? You just keep, you know, well, um, fighting in the mud pit, or, or what do you do? Well, we need, we need to fight insurance companies to make coverage for obesity better, that it's not a cosmetic issue, that is a medical issue. So we need patients to be able to come to see people like me and get paid by insurance providers because a lot of the insurance providers don't believe that what we do is medicine. Um, we need to get coverage for registered dietitians and nutritionists because most insurance plans for children, you're only allowed to see a nutritionist once you have diabetes, which is a little bit too late. You know, The insurance companies will pay for lifelong diabetes medicine, hypertension medicine, arthritis medicine, but they don't believe in paying for weight loss drugs because they consider it cosmetic. Um, so I do a lot of outreach and I do a lot of lobbying in Congress, lobbying on the state level, contacting your congressmen. Um, and I take risks and I have parents who are willing to do that for their children's health, you know, to use these drugs safely and monitor them. And I have 
patients who've lost tons of weight and have changed their whole life. I had a patient who used to go to my BFIT program, and the first day she didn't want to go in. She, she was 16, and she didn't want her mother to leave the Y, even for a minute, while she had to go into the class to exercise. Hmm. And um, she went out, when she left for college, she was a dance major. So two years, it changed her life. Yeah, that's very you know? cool. Yeah. We, just briefly, you, you said that you'll actually end up prescribing metformin and other weight loss drugs to kids sometimes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that most doctors won't do that, and why? And, and why is it yes. safe in a certain way um, and not safe in another way? So metformin is safe. It's just not common for like I think that most doctors are not trained. So now obesity medicine education is becoming part of a curriculum for residency, but up until now it really hadn't been, and that's part of the organization I belong to. The I'm a director on the American Board of Obesity Medicine, and we um, you know we train doctors now how to use medicine safely in, in weight loss. I am, I'm on faculty at Cornell and I get the Cornell, um, Cornell has a, a fellow, a fellowship for obesity in general. And I take those adult doctors, they come to my office and they learn how to treat pediatric obesity. And I, and I learn from them about the adult drugs and I go to courses and I educate myself and I, I think about which drug would be a good, a good match for my adolescent patients. Um, but there have been many studies that metformin is a safe drug. It's just a mindset. People, pediatricians, nurse practitioners, doctors, primary care doctors are overloaded with work. They have 10 to 15 minutes to see a patient for a well visit. They have to do your camp form, your school form, your allergy form, school issues, sleep issues, you know, your cold and your asthma. And then they're left for like 20 seconds to ask you about your diet and exercise. Okay. So really? they need doctors like us to help them and take take that load off of them so we can actually help them with their patients. So we need to get the referrals. We need doctors to know about the minute your patient starts to jump percentiles with weight gain, you need to refer them before it's too late. That kind of, we need that kind of communication. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm very thankful you do what you do. And it sounds like, uh, unfortunately there's a glut of business is not a shortage. So. Right. Right. It's, yeah. There's a glut there's a glut, but yet I don't get enough referrals. I need, I, there's those patients out there, and we, we need them to know that there are board-certified, you know, obesity medicine doctors willing to help. And just like you said, you've been suffering for it your whole life, and you might not ever lose your weight. I can put you in touch with the right people to help you lose your weight because nobody should suffer from their weight their whole life. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you at the end. What are some resources for uh, parents and people listening that, you know, have weight problems? Sure. What, what, what's some general yeah. recommendations? So, so you can go on to the um, – I think it's the OAC. Let me see what it is. OAC. Hold on. The Obesity Action Coalition homepage. Um, that's that's a website for patients who suffer from obesity. It has uh, resources. It has lists of doctors who treat obesity. You know, who, who are certified in obesity medicine. You can go to the American Board of Obesity Obesity Medicine website, and we have a directory for state by state with doctors who are board certified in and diplomats in obesity medicine. You can contact your local hospital. There are many, many wellness programs. I mean, we've been, maybe we've been a little too negative in our discussion today, but many employers are, are, are creating wellness programs because they realize how much obesity is costing them in the end. So it might not be that your United Healthcare has a program, but your local you know, branch where you work might have something, or you're, if you work in a big um, company, like a corporation like IBM or GE, they might have a wellness program. So you should look for wellness programs. You should look for most YMCAs now have, excuse me, they have funding for heart healthy programs. So there are programs around. You just have to look for them. It's not going to go find you. You have to go find it, but there are programs that exist. Yeah. 
Oh, very good. Well, Dr. Hess, I appreciate you coming. And then if people want to get in touch with you in your office, they should look for Gramercy Pediatrics. Yep, www.gramercypediatrics.com. Yep, and I'm in okay. New York City. I have two locations. Okay, great. Yeah, I appreciate you coming. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. Nice talking to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues where we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.